they put a chest tube in to that pleural fusion. And what comes out is bile and gastric content from this chest tube. Hey there, I'm your host, Sarah Lorenzini, a rapid response nurse and educator who loves telling stories to teach critical thinking. This podcast is for nurses who want the knowledge, skills, and confidence to respond to any emergency. With almost 20 years of experience in the ER and critical care nursing and a master's degree in nursing education, I have a lot of stories to share, and I love to nerd out and break down the pathophysiology, pharmacology, and nurses' role in emergencies. Stories bring learning to life. It is way easier to learn from and remember the stories that my colleagues and mentors have told me than anything I've read in a textbook. And that is why I made this podcast. Every episode is packed full of exactly what you need to know to handle whatever crisis that could arise on your shift. It's one thing to get the right answer on the test, but knowing how to detect when your patient is declining and what to do when your patient is crashing is what will make or break your day and might just save your patient's life. On today's episode, I'm welcoming back my buddy Christian, affectionately known as my favorite nerdy nurse practitioner. Christian has been a podcast guest before. He was on episode 18 and episode 28, talking about two very interesting metabolic acidosis cases. And today I'm graced with his presence once again to talk about acute respiratory distress syndrome. So Christian, welcome back to the Rap Response RN podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So now the, the question is, are you graced with my presence or cursed with my presence? Because I feel like it's more of like a little bit of a curse with your presence. <laughs> But I'm appreciative that I'm back. This is been... Oh, I love talking with you, Christian. <laughs> you know, your the DK episode we did is the number one, like the top downloaded podcast of all the ones that I've created. <laughs> so I don't know if it's because people are really confused by DKA or they really like you or they just find you interesting. I don't know, but it's definitely a top episode. So well, good. Yeah. We are all graced with your presence, my friend. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad. So I'm glad. before we dive into the case, <laughs> You've already introduced yourself before, but just for this episode, can you take a moment just to give a quick synopsis of your nursing career, what you're up to these days, what makes you someone who's able to talk about ARDS? So it's funny because like the more and more I, the more and more years go by, the more and more I have to like actually talk about when it comes to like my background and my experience because it's been a decade. I've been in nursing a decade, which blows my mind. So I started off as a burn ICU nurse. And as per previous podcast episodes, you will find out that the first day that I charged, Sarah floated to my unit and I was so happy that she came. So I did burn ICU nursing for about five years. Uh, then I worked for a surgical critical care service that covered various different ICUs. And I spent most of my time in like the mechanical support units there and cardiac ICU and the lung transplant ICU. Then I went over to the hospital where Sarah uh, works at, and I was one of the critical care nurse practitioners. I did that for a few years. I was director of the advanced practice providers for critical care for the last year I was there. And then I took a bit of a hiatus from there. I'm doing, I'm still doing critical care stuff, but mostly I'm focusing now on still working in the unit, but also doing home visits, post-ICU home visits, and going to different rehabs and long-term acute care hospitals and kind of serving as like a critical care outreach service where I proactively screen those patients and intervene before they get too sick. So I'm doing a little bit of everything. 
And in terms of what makes me qualified to talk about ARDS, so like I said, I worked mostly in the over the past few years, mostly in the mechanical support units, and that's kind of uh, been a real interest of mine. So ECMO management, and that goes with ARDS management um, for obvious reasons, uh, because ECMO is a treatment modality for ARDS. And also there was that little three-year period where we had a an, a worldwide uh, pandemic where I got to treat a lot, a lot. Yeah, remember <laughs> that one time? A lot of ARDS. So um, I've given lots of talks on ARDS and ventilator management, and um, I've had some pretty interesting cases throughout the year. So I'm glad that I'm here to talk about it. I am looking forward to nerding out with you once again about this really complicated but oh so fascinating topic. So Christian, can you tell me about your patient, HIPAA appropriate, of course, just so we kind of know the background before we dive into ARDS itself? Yeah. So uh, this was an actual case. It is. So this case is about a male in his early 20s. This kind of a very weird presentation. So initially was losing weight over a period of six months. And just over the past couple of days was having like increased shortness of breath, activity intolerance. And right, 20, early 20s, you're not supposed to feel that, right? That's supposed to be, you know, the prime of your life, super in shape. So it's really weird that this person is short of breath. So goes to the emergency department and then they find out that he's hypoxic. Uh, they put him on a non-rebreather and his PO2 on a non-rebreather, 15 liters is uh, 65. So super weird. They take a chest x-ray and they find out that he has a significant pleural effusion on his left side. Not really sure what exactly it all is. Um, and his ABG, so then they put him on BiPAP to try to see if they could bridge him over. And his ABG on that BiPAP 100% FiO2 was a pH of 7.21, a PCO2 of 78, a PO2 of 82, a bicarb of uh, 14, and a lactic acid of 6. So they decided, okay, we're just going to intubate this patient and kind of get everything settled until we get our hands on on the scenario. And they put a chest tube in to that pleural fusion. And what comes out is bile and gastric content from this chest tube. So the thought originally was like, okay, well, something like there was an error in the procedure. They sent him for a CT scan. And lo and behold, it is in the pleural space, but they also find that he has a fistula between his stomach and his pleural space. So he has a gastropleural fistula. So that's the background of, of this patient. Wow. Okay, so you just dumped a lot of stuff. Let's unpack some of it before we dive more into ARDS. Yeah. So the patient is young, otherwise healthy, and has a really bad ABG. Yep. When you read that ABG, what stuck out to you? So first thing that I look at is the pH. Like why, so why is he so acidotic? Is it a metabolic acidosis? Is it a respiratory acidosis? And it looks like it's a combined, right? Um, with a CO2 that high and a bicarb that low. So there's something metabolically going on, but there's also something going on where we're not getting rid of the CO2 like we should be getting rid of it. So why are we not ventilating appropriately? Because there's a difference between oxygenation and ventilation, right? Oxygenation mm -hmm. is going to go and maintain your PO2, um, your oxygen level in the blood, but your ventilation, the ability of the lungs to open and close, inflate and deflate, is going to really regulate your carbon dioxide. So he's not ventilating, and that's a problem because he should be ventilating because look at his bicarb, right? That's number one. 
And number two, look at his PAO2. It's 80, 82, right? So normal is like 80 to 100, right? So, okay, that's not too terrible, but he's on 100% FiO2. 100%. <laughs> yeah. Right. So we normally breathe 21% FiO2, like out in the air. If I'm going outside of the park, I'm breathing 21% oxygen. This guy is breathing 100% oxygen and he barely has a normal PaO2. So given that right away for his metabolic status, for his inability to ventilate and compensate for the metabolic acidosis, and for his inability to oxygenate, and like, and he just does not look good, where I, that's what sticks out to me and I, no-brainer intubation this patient. Okay. All right. So the ABG looks bad. But then also the chest X-ray mm -hmm. has a portal fusion. You probably were not expecting yeah. it to be gastric contents in the lung space, <laughs> but you knew something was in there that doesn't belong there, right? It looks all white on the chest X-ray. Yeah. Okay. So were you the one that placed the chest tube? Because I wish I could have been there to watch you struggling to figure out where did I just put oh, this tube? No, it, thank goodness somebody else went through went through that chest. I have had that happen to me, though, where I put in a chest tube and there's a lot of blood and you hope to the universe that you do not did not put it in a large blood vessel. <laughs> <laughs> but no, so you go and you see a chest x-ray and half of the chest x-ray is whited out. It's not opening up, right? It's completely collapsed. So it's either one of two things. It's either an effusion or a mucus plug. He has no reason to have a mucus plug. Uh, he didn't show up with any cough, with any pneumonia. He doesn't have any medical history of cystic fibrosis that has like thick secretions, nothing like that. Effusions, right? So we could have a pleural effusion. You could have a hemothorax, a chylothorax. Uh, but he didn't have any trauma that we knew of. There were no broken ribs. There's nothing to indicate that he had been hit no bruising, nothing on his flank. So why would he have a hemothorax? So we just, they just thought, we all just thought that it was a pleural effusion, which is just regular pleural fluid that goes and accumulates. And that could happen for a ton of different reasons, right? It could be from renal failure, from pancreatitis, it could be from fluid overload, it could be for a ton and a ton of reasons. Cancer. But when you start to, when you put in a chest tube and you have stomach contents, either A, you put it in the stomach or there's a connection. And it turns out with this gentleman, he actually had an aggressive lymphoma. And the lymphoma actually created a connection between his stomach and his pleural space, which actually makes sense because about 80% of your immunity actually comes from your gut. So it's not really strange when you think about like having a lymphoma and having creating bowel issues. So unfortunately, that's, that's what he had. He had cancer creating that gastropleural fistula. But then that also, so think about that, right? That's going into his chest, right? Those stomach contents are going into his chest, into the pleural space. There also may be a connection and all those gastric secretions are also going into his lungs, which will lead to the progression of, of the case. The lungs don't like that. <laughs> no, the lungs do not like that. No, not at all. <laughs> I mean, because you have not only the acidic nature of gastric contents, but also the bacteria that lives inside the gut doesn't really belong inside the lung. So that's a, a double whammy for problems and inflammatory response. So I know from the ABG and the white out x-ray, this patient has ARDS, but 
As far as like diagnostic criteria, what differentiates ARDS from say just like regular old pneumonia or like a COPD exacerbation? Like how do you know it's ARDS and needs emergent intervention versus just like, giving some antibiotics? Yeah. So when it comes to diagnosing these things, right, this is going to be a little dense. So please uh, uh, just bear with me a little bit. So the first thing that you're diagnosing on him is hypoxemic hypercapnic respiratory failure. Okay. So he's got a respiratory failure. Then you come up with your differential diagnosis of what those things could be. It could be a pulmonary embolism. It could be COPD. It could be pneumonia. It could be aspiration. It could be ARDS. All of those things can cause it, right? So then you got to ask yourself, like, what's the diagnostic criteria? How do I know it's ARDS? Well, the pathology of ARDS is essentially inflammation at the alveolar level. And because you have inflammation in general, right? Inflammation in general causes increased capillary permeability. And because of that, you have protein leakage into the interstitium. So if that happens at the alveolar level, that protein going into the interstitium will go and draw fluid there. It'll actually collapse your alveoli and will turn it from like this nice inflated alveoli to kind of like a shriveled up alveoli. And essentially it creates a larger distance between the blood vessels around the alveoli and the air that goes into the alveoli. So it does two things. One, it completely collapses the alveoli. Number two, it kind of increases the distance that oxygen has to travel from inside the alveoli through the cells into the blood vessel for gas exchange to actually occur and vice versa. But that's from a systemic effect. If you have something like pneumonia or aspiration or a mucus plug or something like that, those things can all lead to a systemic sequelae. But that's not necessarily in and of themselves systemic. So ARDS can be caused by pneumonia, aspiration, gastroplural fistulas, also anything that causes inflammation in the body, right? So pancreatitis, burns, we saw this a lot with burn patients, polytrauma, autoimmune flare-ups, obviously viral infections such as COVID, those things. So the question is, how do you differentiate if this is actually a systemic sequelae and it's causing ARDS. So there's a diagnostic criteria called the Berlin criteria. So the Berlin criteria essentially breaks, you have to have all of the following to, you have to have all of the following for, to call it ARDS, okay? You have to have number one, bilateral infiltrates on a chest x-ray, meaning both lungs are affected. Number two, those bilateral infiltrates cannot be solely explained by fluid overload or congestive heart failure. So why does that matter? Congestive heart failure will cause bilateral infiltrates and hypoxemic respiratory failure. You know, 100% will, right? And that makes sense because if you have congestive heart failure, your heart's not pumping. So the pulmonary arteries are just getting filled and filled and filled with fluid. And as they get filled with fluid, the fluid's gonna leave the pulmonary arteries and go into the lung tissue. And you take a chest x-ray, it looks exactly the same. So you don't really 100% know just by the chest x-rays that ARDS versus congestive heart failure. So you got to dig a little deeper, right? So bilateral infiltrates not solely explained by fluid overload or congestive heart failure. I say that word solely because you could have a CHF exacerbation with ARDS, but that's two disease processes happening at the same time, not one big disease process. So you got to kind of tease that out. 
it has to be relatively recent within seven days and an inciting event. So an inciting event would be anything that causes systemic inflammation or inflammation to the lung tissue. Aspiration, inhaling toxins, having gastropleural fistulas to where you go and you are exposing your body to gastric acids, right? Or your lung to gastric acids. Pancreatitis, because you have a massive surge response. A sepsis from anything, cellulitis, bowel perforation, cholecystitis, anything. Anything that causes a septic response can cause ARDS. Polytrauma, why? Because if you go and you have multiple traumatic injuries, you go and you release uh, systemic inflammatory mediators and they don't discriminate, right? You can have an exaggerated inflammatory response and it can go and it can attack the lungs. So you have to have a relatively recent event within seven days or so. And then you have to have hypoxemic respiratory failure. And hypoxemic respiratory failure is defined as a P to F ratio uh, less than 300 is technically the term. So then people ask me, what's a P to F ratio? So if going back to this case, to this guy, looking at his original ABG, oh, his PAO2 is 80, right? But that's not 100% FiO2. That's different than 60 on room air. So those are two wildly different things. Even though the number is lower on room air, that is a lot healthier lung than 80, 82 to be exact on 100% FiO2. So if you go and you get your PaO2 and you divide it by the percentage of the FiO2 you're breathing, that gives you your P to F ratio. And that's an indicator of how well your gas exchange is occurring, okay? So I'm going to give you an example. This guy's P to F ratio is 82 because it's 82 divided by 100%, which is one. So let's say I were to get your PaO2 and it's 100 and you're on 50% FiO2. 100 divided by 50%, which is 0.5, is 200. So that would go and put you into hypoxia per the ARDS uh, criteria. So that's how you would go and diagnose it. They meet all of those criteria then you know that the patient has ARDS. A lot of times, it's not uncommon for you to say, ah, they have ARDS. And then you optimize their ventilator management. You diurese them, treat them for CHF exacerbation empirically, and they magically get better. That's not ARDS. The progression of ARDS is the first zero to seven days of severe hypoxia, third spacing, all that. Then the week or two after, you kind of have this phase where you recover. During that phase, one of two things are going to happen. Either you're going to get better from the ARDS and you're going to get extubated or off the ventilator and you're going to do fine, or you go into what's called the fibroproliferative stage, which essentially your lung tissues are scarred and they have permanent damage from it. And that happens, shoot, I want to say 20 to 40% of the time, I want to say, depending on the literature you cite. So it happens a, a decent amount. And those patients end up having long-term consequences. So... That's how I would look at diagnosing ARDS. I would look at one, the ABG, all right, hypoxia. Look at the x-rays, bilateral infiltrates. Look at the timing. Okay, he obviously has an insult right now. He's got stomach acid going into his lung and it's not solely explained by heart failure. And yeah, so that's, that's how I would diagnose ARDS. That was very lengthy. <laughs> that was good. So I think to summarize all that, the takeaway is a CHF x-ray and an ARDS x-ray look pretty darn similar. Uh -huh. It's a bunch of white. Uh -huh. But 
if you look at the history and the Berlin criteria that you were talking about, this is really a secondary diagnosis. Something else had to happen to throw this patient this inflammatory situation. And that's kind of how it would like guide towards this diagnosis. So like this guy had the gastric contents in his in his lungs, or they had pancreatitis, or they recently had pneumonia, or currently have pneumonia. There's something else precisely like turning this into such a terrible inflammatory response. But if they're your classic, I have CHF and didn't take my Lasix, and now I can't breathe. I mean, they could develop ARDS, but it's probably something else going on. Yeah, a hundred percent. Okay. You talked a little bit about lung protective ventilation, but could you go into more, like once you got decided, okay, yeah, this is definitely ARDS, how do you manage this patient different than other ventilated patients? So providing a historical context, right? So ARDS is relatively, when I say relatively recently, like discovered, I mean, it was probably discovered within the past like century or two. This isn't like an old, we've known this for, for millennia. So when we found out that this was like an actual disease process, we started note. So what are the characteristics? Like I said, you have bilateral infiltrates. Your alveoli are completely crumbled up and not really opening up. So you go and you intubate these patients and you want to open up those lungs, right? Because if your alveoli are collapsed, then, hey, they're not working and the air's not getting to them and we're not exchanging gas. So originally... The, the mode of ventilation that people would use or the strategy of ventilation was high tide volumes, low peep, essentially to low peep to reduce uh, trauma and high tidal volumes like 12 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. So what happened? We were noticing that people were getting pneumothoraces. We we're noticing that people were dying from ARDS left and right. And somewhere along the line, Somebody said, man, I wonder if we are just a little bit more ginger with the lungs. And let's see how that works out. So then came the ArtsMed trial in 2000. Okay. So in the year 2000, this was published. So a few years before, hospitals got together and created a network of ARDS and essentially put people into two groups. Okay. Traditional, a large a tidal volume low peep strategy and low tidal volume, high peep strategy, okay? With permissive hypercapnia. We'll get to that in a second. So instead of 12 cc's per kilo, we're going with six cc's per kilo. And instead of a low peep, we're actually gonna increase the peep. So, and I can get to that in, in, a, in a second, white peep matters. But just to go and summarize this data, they found that the patients that were in the high peak, low tidal volume of ventilation actually did significantly better. And ever since then, that has been the gold standard with ARDS. And there's been multiple trials after and show that to validate that study. So that's become the gold standard. Now, the problem is if I go and decrease your tidal volume, you're going to decrease your minute ventilation. So what's minute ventilation? Think of minute ventilation like the cardiac output of the lungs, okay? Your cardiac output is stroke volume times heart rate, and that determines how much blood is going through the body. Your minute ventilation is going to be your tidal volume times your respiratory rate. And the reason that happens is because the more air that you breathe in and out, the more you're ventilating and the lower your carbon dioxide is going to be, right? So high minute ventilation, low carbon dioxide. 
So if we're going to reduce the tidal volume, we're actually going to reduce our minute ventilation. So people are kind of scared about that because they're like, well, now you're going to create a respiratory acidosis, right? Because you're lowering your minute ventilation, you're lowering how much CO2 you're getting out of the body, and you're going to have high CO2 in your body because you're not getting rid of it as much, and your pH is going to go down. You're going to become acidotic. So people were worried about that, but really, really, you don't have significant effects from respiratory acidosis until your pH hits below 7.2572. Some would argue lower, but 7.2 is probably, in terms of my practice, what I've seen people comfortable with. When it's around 7.2, people start to kind of like get a little tense. So 7.2 to 7.25. So this trial said, hey, we're going to lower our tidal volumes and we're going to tolerate this. And those patients still did better. That's what we call lung protective ventilation. So why is it lung protective? Well, there, whenever you ventilate patients, there's traditionally three types of trauma. More recently, now we're getting, we're identifying a fourth type of trauma, but the different types of trauma that you can have with mechanical ventilation is atelectotrauma, barotrauma, volutrauma, and then what's now known as like shear stress trauma. Okay, so atelectotrauma is what occurs whenever your alveoli inflate, but then they collapse all the way. Because remember, when they collapse all the way, the surface tension is real high, so they don't open up that easy because of all the surfactant and stuff that's in there. So it's real hard to open it back up once you go and completely collapse that alveoli. So the more that you inflate and then completely collapse, the more you inflate and completely collapse and do that over and over again, you're actually releasing inflammatory mediators damaging the alveoli. So when you're releasing inflammatory mediators, what's happening? You're having more inflammation. What's the pathology of ARDS? Inflammation, right? So, or you're worsening this infl inflammatory response to whatever is triggering it. So that's atelectotrauma. And that's where the high peep strategy comes in and is beneficial and protects that, right? Because if you go, PEEP stands for positive and expiratory pressure. Essentially, we all have PEEP. When we exhale, we actually keep a little bit of positive pressure. We keep a little bit of volume in our lung to make sure that those alveoli are stented open. But when you have ARDS, that PEEP isn't cutting it. It's not doing its job because you have so much pressure from the inflammation going and collapsing each and every single alveoli. So by going and providing a high PEEP strategy, you're essentially, once the patient exhales from the ventilator, you're stenting that airway open to prevent it, the alveoli from collapsing again and creating that atelectotrauma trauma that occurs with opening, closing, opening, closing, opening, and closing. And I, I hope that your listeners can see my hand movements as I'm explaining this. <laughs> <laughs> Most of them are probably driving their car right now, so so probably cannot see you. But I promise it's you can there. envision. Imagine Christian holding his hands open and closed, making the shape of an alveoli. <laughs> oh my gosh! So before going, can I just interject no, really quick? There's so many things that we have been taught over the years. This is how you do yeah. it, and then new research comes out and tells us, nope, that's not the best way to do it. Like if I was a nurse back in, I don't know, like right at 2000 when this research came out, would I have a hard time switching my mindset from our patients need this like low peep and high tidal volumes? Because that's what I've always done. 
the research shows, no, actually, we've been doing it wrong all this time. And we need to do it totally different because the risk of hypercapnia is far lower than the risk of adelectotrauma, barotrauma, volutrauma. The research supported that. And so as we continue in our practice... There's probably things that me and you are currently doing, Christian. Oh, my gosh. That we've always done our whole career. <laughs> but at some point, we're going to be like, oh, the research says that's not the right way. And we have to be OK with switching our practice and changing things up and doing it differently and getting a different mindset about that particular intervention. Because we know that like doing interventions based on research is what's best for patients. Yeah. So I know that you're all about evidence-based practice, as am I, but this is just yet another example of how things have changed over the years. So newer nurses that are listening to us, listening to my podcast now, 10 years from now, I may be coming back on and saying, actually, we've learned that what I taught you in 2023 is no longer accurate, (laughs) and now we're doing it differently. And that's not, we weren't doing anything wrong, like morally, because we're doing what we knew was best, but at some point... The right thing to do is to switch it up. So just wanted to interject that. Yeah. Continue. Just to add on to that point, how many years were people using normal saline as their first go-to with fluid? And then now we have like more research that shows that normal saline isn't the best. What are you talking about? We still do. (laughs) People still use normal saline for everything. (laughs) I have hope. (laughs) Just keep on that bandwagon one day. (laughs) One day it's going to change it. So that's just one type of trauma that that occurs, right? So then there's also barotrauma. So barotrauma happens when we start going and like giving such high pressures like through the ventilator that, I mean, this one's not going to be, this one's more common sense. If I go and just sh- jam air down your throat and into your lungs, it's going to cause damage. So the question is, so we know on the ventilator, trauma is prevented with PEEP, right? So because... The key is like, I'm giving you all this science stuff, but it only is as good as you're able to apply it, right? So barotrauma, how do we know, like, man, like, what do we do? How do we prevent this? What's going on? So on your ventilator, you have two things called the peak inspiratory pressure and the plateau pressure. So the peak inspiratory pressure. So imagine you have air going in through the ET tube or through the tracheostomy tube from the ventilator. And when you go and you shove that air into your lung, it's going to create an initial spike in pressure, right? And then as you inhale, what happens is that air goes and hits your lungs, then diffuses out through all the other distal airways. So with that initial air going into your lungs originally is your peak inspiratory pressure. Then as you maintain the inhalation phase, right, which is, I say like a second, right? So I'm saying it kind of sounds like I'm saying it occurs over seconds or minutes, but it occurs really quickly. The air goes, diffuses out into the distal airways and the pressure that's maintained in the lung as the air is in there and diffused all throughout the airways is your plateau pressure. So what happens? If your peak inspiratory pressures are really high because I'm just shoving air in there and your lungs are stiff, like they're not opening up because they're so de-recruited, right? That's going to cause a peak inspiratory pressure. So if your peak inspiratory pressure goes above like 40 or so, that's a bad sign. That tells me that you're having a high amount of pressure going in initially with each breath. So that's one way, keeping your peak inspiratory pressure less than 40. Uh, The other thing that we need to do and make sure to prevent barotrauma, the best thing that we need to do 
is measure a plateau pressure. So if I go and press, there's a nifty little button on the ventilator that is an inspiratory hold. And my disclaimer, please don't do this if you guys are not familiar with ventilators because this could really hurt someone. Um, so we just have to make sure that we're careful when we're doing this. <laughs> just I had to give that disclaimer. If you go and you hold a, that button, what it does is it puts air into the lung and it keeps it there. It doesn't let the patient exhale, okay? And what it'll do is it'll measure the pressure as you're keeping your lungs inflated. And if you get that pressure, that's going to be your plateau pressure. So keeping your plateau pressure less than 30 has been shown to be protective against damage from high pressures in the lung. So that's the second type of uh, trauma that occurs with mechanical ventilation. The third type is volume trauma. So imagine that half of your lung is completely de-recruited. So the bottom part of your lung is completely de-recruited. You have severe atelectasis, okay? The top part of your lung, of your lungs are open. They're stented open. They haven't completely collapsed. Air and fluid alike go through the path of least resistance. Why do I mention this? If you go and give somebody 10 cc's per kilo of tidal volume or any cc per kilo of tidal volume, it's not like that air goes throughout all verb, all equal, evenly distributed. No, doesn't happen that way. It goes through the path of least resistance. So when we're giving high tidal volumes, what ends up happening is that most of those excessive tidal volumes are going to the already open lungs because they're already open, path of least resistance, and it over-distends the alveoli and causes damage and release of cytokines and local inflammatory mediators and will worsen your inflammation. So volume trauma happens because of that, because you're over-distending your alveoli. And then there's that component too of like, not all of your lung is inflated evenly. And that unevenness causes damage to the healthy lung already. So that's volume trauma. So those are the basic, those are the three that you're going to learn in nursing school and in nurse practitioner school. Can I interject on that one just really quick? Please do. Go. Yeah. So the term recruit or de-recruit, I don't know that I learned that in nursing school. I learned that being an ICU nurse. So just to be clear, recruit is when you can get the alveoli to open up and do its job, be able to receive oxygen exchange gases. And de-recruit means it's stuck closed and it's not a part of the team of this whole oxygenation ventilation thing. So we want to recruit it back to the team to do its job with the lungs. And then when you have a lot of de-recruitment, you can have volume trauma because like you said, it's not the entire lungs receiving that volume. It's almost like trying to give an adult amount of volume to a pediatric lung. Like you have a smaller space to fit all that volume into, and that's where you have the problem. So just wanted to interject and clarify, because when I graduated nursing school, I had never heard of recruit and de-recruit. That was a, a new thing I had to learn at the bedside. So continue, Christian. Another way that I explain it to people that have a hard time with this concept is imagine I'm in a house. And I invite a hundred people over to my house and I have two rooms that the people could fit in. If both rooms are open, you're going to get 50 and 50, right? But now let's say I lock the door or I make the door hard to open on room B. What's going to happen? The hundred people or most of the hundred people are going to go to the open room already and it's going to be super crammed and nobody's going to be having fun. Same principle. I don't know if that makes sense or just confuses people more. If it confuses you more, forget that I even said that. No, that's good. I think it's good to explain the same concept different ways because yeah. everyone has a different style of learning. So very good. 
And then the last sort of trauma, and this is a newer phenomenon that's been described more in the literature. So we've discovered this uh, concept of driving pressure. So imagine you have a peep of 10. That means that the pressure in your lung will never get below 10. Does that make sense? Because that's at the end of exhalation. Your lung is completely Mm -hmm. exhaled. That's your peep. That's the pressure in your lung, positive end, expiratory pressure. That's the pressure in your lung after you have finished expiration or exhalation or however you want to say it. Now, I go and I inhale and my plateau pressure is, let's say, 20, okay? So now, essentially, that's going to be your pressure of inhalation, right? Because that's the air has gone through all the lung and there you go. So you have, it's already dispersed and if you hold it, that's what's going to be the pressure in your lung at when you have inhaled and opened up your lung and air has gone through. I feel like I said the same thing like five times. So if you subtract those two, you get what's called the delta, the delta P, which is your plateau pressure subtracted by your PEEP. And that's what's known as your driving pressure. So if you think about it, the higher that is, that means that the air is really being pressurized in the lung to get those lungs inflated. So as your compliance gets worse, that driving pressure will go high. Or, and I could do a whole talk on specifics with mechanical ventilation because it gets a little nuanced with it. But the point is the higher that driving pressure is, there's a lot more evidence that we're actually creating damage to the lung. So there's like some newer data showing that driving pressure less than 12, less than 14. It's not more dangerous if your driving pressure is 14 or less. And I think there's a mortality benefit if you keep it 12 or less or 10 or less. The specific numbers, I have to look back, it depends on the data out there. It's still a little bit of a controversial issue whether it makes a difference or not, but there is 100%. There is physiological rationale, the fact that the higher the driving pressure there is, the more damage you're going to get to your lung. So the things that we're looking at with uh, lung protective ventilation is keeping your PEEP high to make sure you don't completely collapse all your alveoli making sure that your peak inspiratory pressure and your plateau pressure aren't out of complete whack because you don't want to cause barotrauma. Your tidal volumes are controlled. They say four to eight. If you go strictly by ARDSNET, the data is six versus 12. But four to eight is safe. MLs per kilo of ideal body weight. And I say ideal because a lot of people calculate it based off of body weight. But, you know, depending on the patient population that you have, if they have a different body habitus, their actual weight may be higher than their ideal body weight. But just because a person gains weight doesn't mean that their lungs increase in size. So you could actually do real damage not going by ideal body weight. And that would prevent volume trauma. Making sure your driving pressures are within a decent range would prevent shear trauma. So That is a very long way to say those are lung protective uh, strategies, and that's how you would go and ventilate these patients in ARDS. You want to rest the lung, baby the lung, prevent harm as much as you possibly can. As one of the, uh, an attending that I worked with said, oxygenate just enough, ventilate just enough, don't hurt the lung. That was like his mantra with ARDS, and, and I think that's a really good way to think about it. Good. So you did a really good job explaining how we use a ventilator a little bit differently with ARDS. 
Can you talk some more about maybe some of the medications we would give or not give to help, as you said, promote resting of the lung? Yeah. So that's the ventilator, right? So the ventilator is one piece. So what happens if I go and I optimize your ventilator and it's still not working? Like this patient still is not doing well. Okay, so now we now we have a real problem because we're we've maximized our ventilator. What are some other things that we could add? So one thing that we could do is actually deeply sedate the patient. <laughs> so I've given uh, talks at like NTI and at work and throughout different places on delirium and heavy sedation. I am not a fan of heavy sedation. I'm not a fan of heavy sedation. So I'm going to say it <laughs> emphatically before I say this next thing. If someone is in ARDS and they are not oxygenating, what happens is agitation actually increases your oxygen consumption, right? Because you're agitated. You have your fight or flight response. You're taking up energy because you need to produce energy. You need to go and metabolize glucose and you're just tense and it increases the amount of oxygen that you use. So the problem is you don't have oxygen to spare. I don't know if anyone has ever been an ICU patient. I have been an ICU patient. Having an arterial line, having an NG tube, having a Foley, not sleeping, makes you very quite irate and causes agitation. I don't remember having a breathing tube, but I had a breathing tube for a surgery. And I would imagine if I woke up with a breathing tube, I would be agitated. So in the patient that doesn't have oxygen to give, you have to control their agitation as much as possible. So deeply sedating the patient is a good go-to. Now, the problem with deeply sedating the patient is that you put them at risk for delirium, but hey, this is the patient's dying, right? So you're not going to have delirium to worry about if the patient doesn't make it through. So you need to go and calm that patient down. Let's say that patient is completely sedated, okay? And it's still, you're not oxygenating, you're not ventilating, you're not, like nothing is going right. Your lungs are having increased peak inspiratory pressures, increased plateau pressures. It's not going well. You can go and actually give a paralytic, right? So paralytics will go and completely paralyze your skeletal muscle. Skeletal muscle is found, obviously, in your skeleton, your diaphragm and skeletal muscle. It does not paralyze your bowels and it does not paralyze your heart. Okay, so this cardiac muscle is different and your bowels are smooth muscle. So in specific, the skeletal muscle. The idea behind that is that you are, you are essentially decreasing. Can we pause for two seconds? So at this point, Christian's baby woke up from his nap. And so Christian had to pause his nerding out for a moment and go be a dad. And since we've been doing this for 45 minutes with some pretty heavy pathophys and Christian's only halfway through it, I figured I would break this episode into a part one and part two. So next week, we will dive back into part two with a little more ARDS patho, some of the medications used in ARDS, and some of the advanced treatment options from proning to ECMO. I always like to summarize the main talking points. So here it is. ARDS stands for Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. It is a potentially life-threatening condition that causes hypoxemia and lung stiffening. Patients with ARDS will die without proper interventions. For this episode, we discuss lung protective ventilation, which involves high amount of PEEP or the amount of pressure maintained in the alveoli after exhalation and low tidal volumes and being okay with a little hypercapnia, which is called permissive hypercapnia. 
We will talk more about interventions next week. So make sure you tune in next week for ARDS Part 2 with my favorite nerdy nurse practitioner, Christian Guzman. Before you go, I just wanted to let you know that if you liked this episode, you would probably like my course too. My one-hour rapid response and rescue course is an introduction to how I approach emergencies. If you would like to learn to think, assess, and respond quickly when your patient is crashing, then you can check out my website, rapidresponseandrescue.com. And if you message me the word podcast on Instagram, I will send you a coupon code for $10 off the cost of the course. Oh, and did I mention that the course is approved by the AACN and worth one continuing education contact hour? So if you want to level up your emergency response skills and get one CE in the process, then this course is what you want. I put the link in the show notes for you. Well, thanks for listening. I hope you learned something that will save a life. Remember, nursing is a team sport. So trust your intuition and don't give up advocating until you are confident you've done what's right by your patient. The views and opinions expressed on this show are that of Sarah Lorenzini and hers alone. They are not intended as medical advice and should not take the place of your institution's policies or procedures. Evidence-based practice is ever-changing and your patient care should reflect the current best practice. If you want to get in contact with Sarah, you can find her at rapidresponseandrescue.com or on social media platforms as The Rapid Response RN. 